welcome back to the Midwife Podcast. Today, Wabanu Kwe, also known as Doreen Day, brings us a compelling story about Indigenous midwifery within the Anishinaabe community. Doreen is a mother, grandmother, and auntie. She was formally trained as a midwife by Gudgee Cook, who's a pretty well-known Indigenous midwife um, who advocates for Indigenous midwifery throughout um, Turtle Island. Um, She was trained by Gajif in the late 70s and 80s for two and a half years, right after Doreen graduated from high school. Together they worked on the Women's Dance Health Project um, starting in 1982, and this project was in partnership with the Red Schoolhouse and the St. Paul Indian Health Board. Today Doreen works as a traditional midwife within the Anishinaabe community. She also holds birth teachings with women in her community. The Medewin faith guides and grounds Doreen's practice as a midwife. Today, as we speak with Doreen on the podcast, her words envision the return of sacred interconnectedness to our birth practices. excited to get to talk to you today and hear about all that you have to share with midwifery. Um, yeah, do you have anything to say? Bring it. <laughs> we are just so excited to have you. You're a legend. I've heard so much about you and I, I can't wait to absorb uh, your wisdom. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to start by uh, speaking in my language because that is one of the things that that we have been instructed to do um, so that we are acknowledging this space, this land, um, all of the creation that is around us, even though we're in a room and in your nice nice um, lounge here, um, we still recognize that where we, this place where we are, this physical space, this physical space is taking up some area of land that we have to address. So I'm just gonna do that for, for us, okay? Bushu okay. and Wabinoque and Dishinukaz, Wabajeshi and Dudame, Abiding Aigua, Gabe Medeo, Anishinabe Ojibwe Quaindao, Minua Undadizike Quaindao, Minua Gaye, Dewana Quaindao, Asibikunes, a Gai Ganing and Dunjaba, Miguachuendan, Medeba Matiziwen, Miguachka Kinegago, Mashumasanan, Nakomasanan, Miguach Mani Dug, Miguachka Kinegago, Minope Matiziwen. Uh-huh. So yeah, I have uh, said my name and my clan. So my name is Daybreak Woman and my clan is the Martin clan. It's a fierce little woodland animal. And um, I said that I was from Boyce Fort or Net Lake, which is where my reservation is in northern Minnesota, near the Canadian border. And I said that I was a midday woman, that I am um, a person who engages in the practice of um, our way of being in the world, which is called the Medewin or the heart way. Um, and it's basically our worldview and our way of engaging in the, um, the teachings and the belief system that our people have had for thousands of years. And then I also said that I was a water woman who prays for the water each day and that I am a woman who helps life come into the world. And, um, and so those are things that we want to be able to, to tell the spiritual things that are here. And so I've done that and just mm-hmm. offered that up. 
Thank you for yeah. entering this space with um, acknowledging like just the identity of where we come from and yeah. bringing, bringing that to the yeah. start here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. One of you can start by telling us about how you became a midwife. Uh, my first wonderings about it were, uh, first of all, my mother had 17 children and I was the baby of those 17. When I was 12, I told my mother, Mom, I'm going to have eight children. And she said to me, why? Why would you think that way? You're 12, why, why do you speak of this? And I said, well, um, because I know I'm going to have eight children. And she said, that's a lot of children for you to have. And I said, Mom, it's not even half as many as you had. And <laughs> really, she, what could she say? Mm-hmm. I knew that I was um, going to be a mother, and I was, I think at that time, as a 12-year-old, I was um, contemplating those things in life, um, like how does life happen, um, and what is, uh, what are those gifts that come to us, uh, you know, as, as spiritual beings, they come and live in a physical place, and I, and I think I actually thought about those things when I was young, and so when I um, graduated from high school, I was married at the time. I was married when I was 18 years old. And um, Gudji Cook, a renowned um, indigenous midwife from the Mohawk Nation, came here with her husband. I think he was doing, um, uh, he was doing a residency or some type of thing at the University of Minnesota, and his, na- his name is Jose Barrio. And um, so she was along with him to stay here for this three or four year period. And so she uh, said, well, I'm going to put myself to work too. So she received a grant. I'm not really sure where it was from, but it was a grant that would um, handpick four women from this community of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and that we would then become trained as, as indigenous midwives. And so I was one of the ones that was chosen. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister, Julia Gillerberg, was chosen. And um, Marcy Rendon um, from White Earth Nation was chosen, and Julia DeGroat. Yeah, Julia, actually Julia Tilson, um, her father is Ken Tilson, the famous American Indian Movement lawyer, um, who's now in the spirit world. But Judy Tilson, I should say, um, was also chosen. And um, all of us had different backgrounds, and um, but for some reason, something within the way that we maybe worked or carried ourselves or had the outlook on life that we were chosen to work with her and in a, in an intensive study of midwifery. Um, and so we started to do that. And um, I had already had, by the time we completed our first year, I had already had my first daughter. And I had a really beautiful experience um, I did have her in the hospital because we we weren't done with our training and that wasn't um, a question as to um, we weren't there yet as a, as a, a crew we were called a, a women's dance health crew so as I had my daughter um, I had a completely natural birth you know by myself in the hospital and the only thing that I knew of that happened to me was that I went someplace and um, because I knew that I had asked my mother 
how when it seems uh, very difficult, what do you do? And she said, well, you need to accept first and foremost that this is the hardest work your body will do. But if you say that P word, then that's what it will be. Mm. And if you do not let that word come near you or enter your mind, then continue to move forward with the work of your body and continue to open everything up. What's the P and word? And so, um, pain. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I don't even like to say it to this yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But, um, For our listeners but that's out what there. She, yeah, so that's what she, that was her advice. And my mother, of course, was very physically fit. And, you know, she never had more than a two and a half hour labor. And wow. she had, wow. you know, very so wonderful, um, you know, quick experiences with childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first five of her children were born at home with a midwife on the reservation. And then in 1942, the law changed, and it required that Native women from the reservation go into the Indian Health Service hospitals that had been built nearby all of the reservations in every state. Every state had one, and they built them near the reservation so they would make these women, you know, indigenous women, go travel there to the hospital. It didn't matter if it was two and a half hours, like it was in my mother's case, or if it was four hours, that was where you had to go to deliver your children. Mm-hmm. And so after her first five children, uh, with a midwife on a reservation named Miss John, then she was constantly, because we were born almost every year, she was constantly trying to figure out how to get there. And many times didn't make it. Like my brother was born in a shack in a blizzard and, you know, she didn't make it. So Um, when I had my second child, who was um, my son, I had him at home with our midwives, and um, he was two years after my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I had all the, all of the midwives that I was trained with. They came to deliver my son, and it was really fabulous. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful thing. Um, so at that point, then, we, I just began to have my children at home. And so my sister, Julia, has been at every one of my births. Wow. Um, and at my children are, she's so connected to my children and she's um, actually, you know, helped me a great deal with, I've shared my children with her and, um, mm-hmm. and they have a, a beautiful relationship. So they have another auntie mom that they can rely on. Um, and she's been a very um, positive force in their lives. Sounds um, like Julia. <laughs> yeah. So they're blessed. Mm-hmm. We're blessed. Um, yeah. So Julia has been at all of, the births of my children, and um, except for the first one, she, nobody made it to the first one. I was there by myself, which was okay because then that's how I kind of checked into another place. <laughs> and um, when I did that, it was a very short time that passed before I went from being dilated to a four to a ten. And by then, I was telling them I'm ready, and they were like, "Oh no, we just take a little while ago." And it was just like went so quickly that um, they were kind of caught off guard. And I had a wonderful delivery. I did not see it as being a challenge for my body. I seen it as something that I moved through um, from maybe like a spiritual place. And that's how I looked at that. And without really having the skills to know what I knew after I was trained in midwifery. But somehow just my mother's words and the and the ability that I have to go to a spiritual space or place. That's how I was able to have my first child. And so all of my other children were, were, um, 
you know, they were, my daughter, my first daughter was very small. She was seven pounds, like 12 and a half ounces. And then my other kids were like all 10 pounds, you know, um, mm -hmm. or more. And I was able to have them safely and comfortably and, mm -hmm. and have them at home. And so I have wonderful birthdays. I don't know, maybe if yes. we get time to tell those <laughs> yeah, later. I want to really, I want to dive into um, what you're talking about with birth and spirituality because you have mm -hmm. so much to share on that topic. Um, but before we go into that, I want to ask you a little bit more about what your training looked like, the, the training that you attended with the, your four other um, midwives. Well, it was about two and a half years of very intensive study, and we were required to be there Wednesday from 8 to 8, um, 8 in the morning until 8 at night. And we, if we had children, if we were nursing, if whatever, we, if we weren't dead, we were, that's the only reason we couldn't be there. It was a, a very severe commitment that we had to make. And we did, and um, unless somebody had to attend a funeral, or we we were you know we were no longer in this physical world, that was the only way that we could miss that. And but it was a, a good way to really um, call forward this kind of commitment, mm -hmm. because we did maintain that very stringent um, teaching time and being together time, and and so every week that we gathered on a Wednesday. Um, we reviewed what we had done the week before. Uh, we learned something new. We were assigned homework. We were able to do research. We had to work on each other. Um, we did a, it was a very intensive um, kind of learning process that was really, um, it wasn't just book learning. It was very much a hands-on experiential way of learning midwifery. Um, Although we read, you know, um, spiritual midwifery, we had a lot of books that we that we actually um, used as a part of our process of learning. But we also used the stories of our elders. Uh, we were encouraged to go and interview any midwives that were from our nations that we could interview, um, and we could we could go and travel and do that. We were actually told, well, these are the medicines we use back in you know, um, Six Nations, but I don't know if you have the same medicines, so maybe you have to go find out. So we had to explore, um, you know, what kinds of medicines were native to us in Minnesota, um, what did our midwives use, um, that type of thing. And so we had, for a certain amount of time, uh, we had to seek out what other knowledges that were still there, that were held by our elders, and we were... Um, we were lucky to be able to engage in some of that, and we were able to hear stories and teachings. And then as I moved out throughout this whole midwifery journey that I've been on, that's my way of, um, that I've always been. I've always been able to um, keep an open mind so that I can continue learning. Um, so for us, it was very intensive. It was practicing. It was... It was um, being able to give, be given a scenario and decide, you know, what was going to happen with that scenario. Mm -hmm. And our, and in fact, our very first birth that we did had probably every complication that could oh, happen. Wow. Yeah. Which it is was rare. A, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that was, and that was a learning tool for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, and everything came out okay. And we were, we had a, you know, spiritual offerings at that birth. We, you know, um, the birthing crew that I was a part of, everybody had their own 
um, way or brought something to that was a little different. Mm. Um, and um, just having that collective knowledge or ability was a powerful thing because whereas um, you know my sister Julia has mastered the art of body work um, mm. and was actually doing body work then and so she would engage in that and actually could turn a breech baby without palpating or touching the mom what's a breech baby a breech baby is a baby that is butt down instead of head down mm -hmm. um, and um, she just did this energy field work and was able to, and, and I'm, she's done it to my own daughter, so I know I've seen her done it many times, but she's been able to use Reiki and other mediums of, um, you know, energy, spiritual energy work with the body. Whereas Marcy, on the other hand, could actually physically see in a spiritual way what was, if anything was wrong. Um, wow. Judy was very practical and just, you know, very much like, here we go, this is our work, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like very, she was very, um, she she just was a shaker mover kind of person. Mm. And and myself, um, I was the youngest of all of those women and I just had, always had this spiritual connection um, to the land, to my own spirit, to my beliefs. And so that ended up being something that contributed in its own way. So we all had different energies and different mm -hmm. qualities and pulling those things together as a team was um, really what made it all work. And um, mm -hmm. and so today I find that I, um, I do my best to, tr not to replicate that, but to use that as an example in the women that I work with that are trying to learn about midwifery, that learning in a group is so much more powerful because you're not... Nothing in this life is singular, really. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we want to think that way, that we can, I can go out and I can do this, but that really doesn't work to our benefit. It doesn't work to the benefit of who we are trying to help or, or what we're trying to do. So I feel that um, having um, women share in that work is the most powerful thing that and it's not that you cannot do it by yourself, because I have done it by myself, but that's not my preference. My preference is to be able to always bring somebody along that is studying. Um, for example, when the twins were born in Michigan, I had my daughter-in-law, who just got off work, and just came right up into the lodge and just came and helped. And, and she has happened to be there um, when she's needed, like for my, for my daughter's birth, they just show up and then the next morning my daughter's having the baby. So it's kind of like she's meant to be on this track learning about um, helping with birth. And so, and so those, those things kind of do take a life of their own. And if someone is supposed to be on that path, then that, that's where they'll be. And so you want to be able to take advantage of the young women that are learning about that so that you can support and, and help them in the best way possible. You touched on two things that I uh, actually have been studying in depth because I'm doing a senior thesis right now on birth and um, I just maybe want you to expand a little more on them. It sounds like you birth very intuitively and it sounds like intuition is used as a skill yes. and as a practice yes. in midwifery training. That's one thing. Yep. And you were also talking about the connectedness 
of um, midwifery and of life and how we can't do things alone and kind of how it takes a team, a diverse team of uh, several different skills that we have our specific gifts. And I've read a lot about um, the disconnection currently in our culture and on Western medicine and how obstetrics has kind of disconnected yes. us from birth. And so intuition and connected knowing are two things that I would like to know a little more about. Well, we, I, I think that as indigenous people, we have always had a way of knowing and we have had a way of knowing in several different facets of life. And um, there is an intuitiveness and there's a way of knowing about birth. And I don't know that I have totally mastered that, but I, and, and I don't know if that's a very good word to actually explain that. I don't know, but I know that I have visited that many times over in my life. And I, I love to visit that place where um, I am there in the magic of when life is coming and how I relate that and relate to the spirit of that is the very most important thing. Mm -hmm. For example, in indigenous midwifery, we are always acknowledging the spirit coming here. And one of our foundational beliefs is that, that we are in this physical world as human beings and we all have come from the spirit world. All of us, even if we are different nationalities, we come from different nations. Mm -hmm. But we come here, and, and for sure, there are universal beliefs that we have been given a body, a spirit, a heart, a mind. So we have four of those gifts that we come with. And then inside of us, as, and as indigenous people, our belief is that we come with our name, our clan, with free will, and with our... Um, just our knowledge of the as that we are a spirit, right? So we have our name uh, as somebody that's coming from the spirit world, knowing full well that we're coming here, you know, to be in a human body, right? To be to taste, taste and touch this life. That's for mm -hmm. the spirit. That's the most beautiful thing that they can that they're coming here to be in this life, and it's just for such a short time, right? And so when you think about that spirit coming, we, we have a way as indigenous people to, to preempt that, to be able to say, we, we want to have that safe journey for you. We're going to make these offerings for you. We're going to make a tobacco offering. We're going to sing for you. We're going to put food out for your spirit. We're going to, we're going to wait for you ever, ever so carefully so that when you come here, you will be touched to Mother Earth and you'll be touched to your mother and you'll be engulfed in this love mm -hmm. of the human beings so that you will be happy you came here and wow. that you'll be safe, right? And that's so, so that whole teaching is just so beautiful. It is, right? It's and that's beautiful. how... Yeah. I'm getting and the chills. I'll put our hands on our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it from the blue But it is. It's, it's a very grounding it. and it's a very important way to acknowledge that part of ourselves which comes from someplace else so if you can imagine it you know and this is a linear view but I, and i don't necessarily agree with the linear view sometimes but this is a perfect example so everything in the spirit is up here and everything in the physical world is down here and so as a spirit after we've chosen our parents and the creator has helped to make them to have them meet which who knows how how long that takes right um then we, we make that journey. We start that journey as a spirit, watching that our parents are, are going to conceive and they're going to be... Even one young woman, an indigenous woman in Minneapolis, um, 
she said, man, I can't believe I picked her for my mother. <laughs> and I said, I said, but spiritually you did. Yeah. And even if, you know, with your mind, you can't wrap yourself, wrap your mind around that right now, but you did because for some reason she was to be your mother, right? So we come from that place. And so the spirit is up here. And when we are born, we start going down. We come down from the spirit world into this physical body. Mm. We reside there with the body as the body begins to grow. And as the body continues to grow and goes through all of those processes about being, being whether we're coming with a male energy or a female energy, you know, which when that Y chromosome is, you know, making that happen. And so when that gets, uh, gets split, then in our story, we are either being having that conversation and that gift of love from the Anangu Kwe, the star woman, or we are having that relationship and that way of knowing from the Nangu and Nini, the, the star man, right? And that's how we get our gender at that time. And so we even have the story about how this little spirit is having all of these relational things and interactions, even while they're being built in the womb and they're growing. Mm -hmm. And so they, they're having all of this happen. And science doesn't really give us enough info about scientifically what's important, right? Because mm -hmm. we need what it's missing is that spiritual viewpoint mm -hmm. yeah. of how that spirit was first. Mm -hmm. So therefore, with indigenous knowledge, that spirit is very important. Mm -hmm. So it's acknowledging the spirit. And so when the baby is born, who is there is not even the important person. It is important what happens when that spirit is welcomed into the world. When that spirit, as a human being, first <sighs> takes that first breath of life. And then they become the human being that they are. And they then are going to balance that spirit and that physical body. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens to them is so very utterly important. And I heard one of my midwife friends just a few weeks ago talk about when in the hospital they have come here in the most perfect beautiful way that we could ever create a human being and when they have taken that first breath in the next minute they are changed by the medical interventions they are changed forever mm -hmm. they are changed and they already have been changed in that minute of life that they have been here they have already been changed from how they came here as a perfect human being, right? How have and they changed? They have they they get the drops in their eyes. They get their foot poked. They get, you know, they get taken from their mother. They get their apgars done. They're you know if there's if they're not breathing right, they they're cuffed with you know an oxygen. Anything and everything happens mm -hmm. as an intervention when it is taking that moment of that perfect human being to just be in this physical world mm -hmm. the way that they were meant to be. Mm -hmm. So immediately, Western medicine takes that from them. Mm -hmm. And I have to agree with that. I have to see that, um, you know, everything that happens to them is not respecting that life that has just arrived. It is so technical the things that have to happen and so whereas they should be skin to skin with their father whether they should be with their mother to the breast of their mother whether they're born in a hospital and they have you know 
their um, their relatives that are there to sing to them the songs of welcome or whatever it is that they do, whatever it is that culturally is done to you know to them with them for them, mm -hmm. that those time that time needs to to be present. But there is no time in the Western medical world, mm -hmm. and that's um, that has to change. Mm -hmm. Or we need to birth differently. Agreed. Somewhere mm -hmm. else. Agreed. <laughs> and you mentioned a few points throughout this interview when you drop into an intuitive space. And I'm wondering in that intuitive space, what is it like? What sort of insights do you have? And how do you hold space for the infant, the spirit, to come into this world unharmed? Well, I think with I think when you are having your baby in a very natural, respected, made spiritual space. There is a way to do that um, where, and, it, and of course it's culturally um, tuned to what culture we're dealing with. You know, there could be, um, you know, like if you're from India, I'm sure that back in the day they had uh, a way to use incense because that is how everybody in some in every culture clears a space to be made to be made sacred and that clearing of the air or clearing of that space is so that all the good things are going to stay there and anything that's you know maybe of the opposite is is actually actually asked to leave or is moved out of that space by the medicine or the or the essence or the incense or or whatever it is that the medicines that are burned right that is very, that's an optimum thing to begin to create that sacred space. So it's allowing indigenous people to burn their medicines, to have their, their sounds and vibrations, which are really um, to invite the sacred because we use our voice. We use our voice because our voice is a sacred vibration. Mm -hmm. And so we use that, that humming, that that chanting, that singing to welcome the baby. So before anything is done, that baby is in that sacred space, now out of its mother's womb and into this physical space and, and actually being able to just adjust, being able to adjust because they'll, they're going to feel their mother's heartbeat, they're gonna feel their father's heartbeat, they're gonna feel the vibration, they're going to hear the vibration differently because now, they're not hearing it from inside the womb, but they're hearing it as a as a human being, mm -hmm. which is going to be different, right? And so just be, being able to to let them absorb that in a way that is peaceful. Because they were in the womb. There's no safer place to be. There's no more of a peaceful place to be than in the womb. And so really, indigenous cultures recreate that safety, recreate that, um, our wee wee zone, it's a swing that, a little hammock swing that we make over the bed, and my mother, these are my mother's teachings, my mother's words, it's not rocket science, it's round, it's dark, there's movement, and that is where we came from, right? Mm -hmm. So we had those little wee wee zone over the, our beds, all my children have been in one, all my grandchildren have been in one. Um, and it's just a it's just a recreation of where they came from. We have the Dikanagan, which keeps them tightly wrapped and and uh, 
keeps them from flailing and waking themselves up. Um, and of course, you know, um, breast is best. I mean, we have, you know, um, just making sure that they can nurse right away um, and, and can, again, the bonding with um, the father and, and other, if grandparents are there. The sounds, the voices, everything that is, is comforting to them. That's why in our culture, the men sing to their unborn. Because after they're born, they sing to them, and that is a way to calm them after they are coming out of the womb. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not there and you're not singing and they are swept away and they are under lights and there are people talking loudly and moving things quickly, mm -hmm. there's no way for that calmness to be for that one. Mm -hmm. And so that's so that everything is like slowed down and everything is um, very purposely... Um, in a sacred mode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what of the scientific model of birth, or what of it, or maybe you don't, um, what aspects do you integrate into this this kind of picture that you're painting of birth for us, the, of really holding that infant in, in sound and vibration in the sacred space? Like, what of the medical mod model are you taking in or not? Um, not much. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things that are done um, in the medical model that, and I just have to say, it, it's done to make money. Yep. Um, and so having a fetal monitor as soon as you walk in the door is not for your benefit. It's for a nurse to read and not engage. One of the women that was in a treatment facility that asked me to attend her hospital birth um, not too long ago, um, you know, we were engaged and singing and um, using the shaker with her and just, you know, really um, being in that, you know, cultural, that sound and vibration space. And, and so she would come in and um, the nurse would come in and so, of course, we'd wait for her to do what she was going to do and then she would leave but she would come in and she would go directly to the fetal heart monitor machine and look at the papers and look at the papers and look at the papers and crinkle the papers and then get them all lined back up and then put them away and then she would leave never once looking at the mother never once asking her if her contractions had changed never even there's like no zero communication so there's no communication but with a machine that is continually, you know, outpouring a feed of what her contractions are doing. That's the disconnection I was referring yes. to before, yes. where we are disconnecting our providers from right. mothers, so that they can. And the I think it's been in between them. <coughs> yeah, and I think it's been happening for a long time because my son is, you know, um, thirty-eight years old, and. Um, my my midwives, I, we knew he was a big baby, but we didn't know how big he was. And so they were like, well, just go to, you know, the clinic and just see if, you know, you'll, this it was like my last prenatal. And it was like, um, they wanted to just get a sense of what, you know, like if I was to have a 
because we didn't really believe in having ultrasounds way back then either. And so they were like, well, don't get an ultrasound, but if they palpate, just tell, you know, maybe just see if what they can estimate the birth weight is of the baby. I said, okay. So I went to my my, my last, because um, I always had double, um, with my birthing crew, I always had um, clinic prenatals, and then I had my birthing crew prenatals. And they, of course, they were always different, right? So we went in, and I had the doctor palpate my baby. And he was just like, you know, he just barely touched me. He was just like, you know, two little jerky movements. He's like, well, your baby's about nine pounds. And I was like, okay. So then I had him, went home and had him the next day, and he was like 10, 8. <laughs> oh my gosh you know but he didn't really get a good I didn't feel that he got a really good feel of where the baby you know even what position he was in it was just kind of very awkward but so I think that um, you know there's a lot to say for you know um, midwives that use the older tools like you know pedoscopes that are different than the modern you know than using sonar and the little Machines that make the staticky noise. What are those called? Exercise? Yeah. No, the little heartbeat um, things. Look, the little sonograms. What are they called? Um, the Doppler. Yeah, the Dopplers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a Doppler, but I don't really like to use it, you know. <laughs> but it sometimes it can be important, you know. Um, so those kinds of things. I think that, you know, uh, using the older tools is, I think, is more accurate. Mm. And I think that... Now studies are starting to show um, that too many ultrasounds is, is actually, you know, too much radio wave movement for the baby. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I kind of always felt, always felt like that. Mm -hmm. um, I tried my best not to have too many in all of my pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes it takes science a little while to prove things that we already know. Yes. And I think there's a lot yeah. of mistrust. Um, mm -hmm. out there around midwives and their tools that they use yeah. because there's no evidence and no data. But that's because they're not studying it. No one's right. bothering to do the studies. And I think if they did, they might find that there's some legitimacy to what midwives are doing. Yeah. But currently, that's I not the case. I have a good example of that. I was at a Midwifery Today conference, and I went to the table at lunch where we talked about doing studies of how midwives practice. And it was like a group of midwives who want to start creating scientific studies of midwifery. Right. And I was like, yeah. I propose a study where we study mother's intuition during birth. And the woman leading the table said, that's too hard to study. We can't do that. And I was like, but like well, why? of course. Of course, yeah. because we know nothing of it now. So that's therefore... Where do we begin? I mean, so there's really more in-depth ways of, of viewing that or, study, you know, trying to think about how, mm -hmm. how that can be done. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if you ask some moms, they would have some information for you, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a really good topic. That would be a brilliant study because then it would lend more credibility to what mothers do know. Mothers intuitively know when they have to push. They don't have to be told. And, and really... They don't have to push sometimes, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, a baby is going to crown without you pushing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just it, yeah. it just makes sense to, like, physically let mm -hmm. a mom do intuitively what's best for her. Mm -hmm. But I think, again, it takes me back to what I had said earlier. There's a time factor. When you are in the hospital, that's how episiotomy started. 
because no one had time to hold a perineum and wait, right? Mm. So just go ahead and cut and, you know, and then there, I was just reading something um, about a week ago on, I was reading something on the, um, and it was written by a midwife and she was talking about the um, the husband stitch, and that was so appalling to me that um, what that what and a is. female midwife, see a certified uh. nurse midwife in the hospital, said to her husband, "I'm going to give you," and she did that to a, the woman that she was serving as a midwife. She said, "I think I'll give your husband a husband stitch," and I thought. How could that happen, like, from one of us, right, from a woman? How could they, you know, how could they say that to another woman? What's a husband stitch? A husband stitch is where they do an extra tightening of, if they're stitching, you know, a tear or a episiotomy, they stitch up, it stitch tighter than what was normally, you know, where they had tore. And so they're putting an extra stitch, which actually puts a lot of, um, undue stress on, on the bottom of the perineum because when they've tightened it too much, there's painful sexual intercourse, there's painful childbirth, and it's yeah. been proven to cause, you know, severe um, pain with women that have had the extra stitch. The extra stitch is supposed to be for men to tighten it up so that they can have a tight vagina, tight labias after a childbirth. And, and where this ever came from, I don't understand. But I was reading about it, and I was really appalled that that, that is happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we were talking a little bit before this interview started about some of the old and some of the new spiritual prophecies um, that are surrounding this work. Um, and I'm wondering, um, kind of what are the foundations of those, and what are you seeing actually coming true? Okay, um, so let me go back to when our our people, as known as the Anishinaabe, we are from an Algonquin stock that um, actually covers a vast amount of the the eastern east northeastern part of the United States and into Canada, and so we we cover um, all the way from North Dakota. Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ontario, Eastern Ontario, all the way to the Eastern Seaboard. When we started our migration um, over about 500 plus years ago, we started at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River, which is in upstate New York. We came on an Eastern uh, migration over a very long period of time where the prophets of our people would tell us, okay, now it's time to move. And so when we stopped someplace, we might have stayed there for, you know, 200 years and before we moved again. And our prophecies, um, the last one that was given uh, was that we would go to a place where food grows on water and that would be our homeland and that was where we should stay. So, of course, in Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota, we have wild rice on, you know, in the Great oh. Lakes area. And so when we got here as a tribal people, we, that is why we stayed here. Wow. And so we came on this very long migration based upon the prophecies that had given over a, spirit, uh, a spiritual um, uh, emphasis and were given over a certain amount of time. 
And so we left there because we were told that if we were going to stay there, that we would get wiped out by the, by the people that were coming. And so we knew for several hundred years before the boats landed that the people were coming. Yeah. And so we, we moved accordingly. And so we were here in this land now known as, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, you know, parts of North Dakota, parts of Manitoba and parts of Ontario in the, in the north of us in Canada. And so we moved because we um, were told by prophecy. And so we know that these prophets were true and what they had said. I'll give you an example really quickly, if I can, that the prophecies, um, we had stayed um, at our third stopping place, which was someplace... Um, I want to say it was before we got fully into Michigan. And some of the people began to doubt the prophets and said, well, how do we really know that they're coming? You know, how do we really know that these people are coming? No one has ever seen them. We haven't heard anything yet. So, so they sent their best um, travelers by canoe, and they, they sent the, the young men who would be very apt at, you know, trying to find these people and to see what they look like and to bring some proof back that they, they were indeed here on this land. And so they stealthily, you know, took the canoes and went on the waterways all the way back to the eastern seaboard to where they got to where the settlers were. And they took a piece of red wool. They got there and when everybody went to sleep, they, they went to get this piece of wool that they cut off of something and they brought it back to the people where they were. And they said, this is, this is indeed true. This is what they have. This is a piece of their, their articles. And they brought the wool back to the people who were doubting the fact that, you know, they, they, were, they existed, wow. they were here. And so that's the first time that our people seen anything of the, of the white race that was here, you know, the people that came from, oh. um, from their own, you know, religious uh, persecution. They came on these boats. And so then they believed that they were here. Okay, so then we kept moving. We kept moving on this very long migration. And so prophes prophecies and prophets for us have always been amongst our people, and they have always been believed because they truly have a, a spiritual connection to um, have the ability to see into the future. So that's one thing. So when I was uh, trained to be a midwife, I was in my 20s, and I was not really doing a lot of home birth or midwifery. And so I went to my spiritual lodge. And in my spiritual lodge, we had an elder that was an eighth degree Medewin man, and he was in his 90s. Um, still very alert, still very sharp, still still um, a very important leader in our, in our lodge. And his name was Archie Mose. And he was from Wisconsin. He was an Ojibwe, um, they call him a midday priest because that's the highest level that you can go in studying about our spiritual way of being in the world. And so he was equivalent to, you know, some of the very, you know, renowned um, spiritual spiritualists and other kinds of uh, belief systems. You know, he was up there like the Pope, right? Mm -hmm. so, so he was very influential and very much um, respected. So I gave him tobacco and I said, uncle, I said, could you talk with me? And he said, yes. And I asked him, I said, um, why are the women not 
wanting to do this. I said, I'm trained to be a midwife and I was ready to help women. And maybe am I too young? Is it, what is, what is the reason why I'm not working like a lot? What it, you know, what should I do? And so I talked with him and he said, well, my girl, he said, uh, I hate to tell you, but they're not ready. And he said, when you get to be, what I see for you in the future is when you're an older woman, you're going to be doing this work. You're going to be doing a lot of work. And so just, I want you to maintain your knowledge, do what you have to do to revisit that knowledge so that you keep that knowledge with you every year, whether you have, lay everything out, study, study, whatever you do, he said, mm. just keep it and you will be doing that work. I said, okay. And then after that, I felt a certain amount of peace because at first I was like gung-ho and all this energy and had no place to do it or, you know, had no way to, to bring it to the people. So I accepted what he said. And then I went through life, you know, doing my midwifery sporadically, you know. And, and so as, um, so the lodge that I go to um, has another elder. And this elder, um, about, I want to say 25 maybe years ago, had given us a modern day prophecy. And this prophecy was that Nijo Dewag twins would bring traditional birthing back to the Anishinaabe. And so at that time in the lodge, I didn't have any indication of how that was going to transpire. I just was hoping that I would live to see that day. And, uh, and of course then, um, about 10 years ago, there were four families that were all pregnant with twins in our lodge. And they were, I was, of course, I knew that that meant something. Mm. And I was trying to figure it out. And so, um, but I didn't ask any of them families because I nobody remembered the prophecy mm. except for one family. Mm -hmm. And the woman, her name is Chris, and she came up to me and she goes, I went and asked our chief if I'm the one. And he said, yes. I'm the one. And so she led me over to the chief, this elder, and she said, um, I believe I'm the one. You said I'm the one. And he said, yes, you're the one. And I said, and I was just like, because I knew what it was. I knew they were talking about the twins, that she was carrying the twins that were going to bring the traditional birthing back to the Anishinaabe. Yeah. And so right then and there, he just looks at me and he says, and you're going to deliver them. And I said, yes, I will, you know, just without thinking. Yeah. And, and so um, they resided in Michigan. And so, of course, I had to fly to Michigan and um, to go there. And, um, and so it's, I know myself, being a midwife, that it's hard, you're, it's hard pressed to find a midwife that will deliver twins. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I did it with a spiritual with a spiritual way of knowing that that was going to happen without anything going wrong, mm -hmm. without, I had no fear. I had, I had a wonderful team that, of women that her friends that flew, one came from Alabama, one came from Canada, one came from, from Michigan, and one came from Wisconsin. And they all came to support her in delivering those babies. 
So I had extra hands, which was really helpful. And it was a, the most beautiful birth, aside from my own, that I have ever been at. It was, you know, um, it, was, it was just the most uh, incredible birth that I have ever been at. We have a spiritual drum called the water drum. And we use that in our lodge, and it's a spiritual drum, and it sends the most beautiful heart vibration that you've ever, ever heard because there's water inside. And so there were three of those drums uh, sounding their voice when the twins were born. Mm -hmm. And there were uh, young women there, indigenous young. Um, there were some that were teenagers, some were younger, and they were able to witness the birth of these twins to see see the possibility of a natural birth they were there for a reason mm -hmm. and then my my daughter-in-law you know three o'clock in the morning got off work and she goes i saw the fire i saw the lodge i saw all the cars and i knew you were going to be here so i just came and so she was at, actually she just went right to the right leg and held her leg, you know, it was just, it was just the way that it was supposed to be. And it was the sound and the, the traditional fire. What we do as um, indigenous people, as Anishinaabeg, and I know that other tribes may have a birth fire too, but we have a birth fire that is a beacon for the spirit to come here from the spirit world. And so that fire is embraced by the community, by the relatives, by the fathers, by the uncles, by the cousins, by the aunties, by everybody. And they come and they make an offering for a safe birth. And so everybody is collectively praying for this little spirit to get here safely. And, um, and that's such a powerful thing mm -hmm. that everybody is engaged and connected to that. And so the spirit knows. The mm -hmm. spirit knows that. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. In that story, you said you had no fear. And I want to talk maybe a little bit about um, about fear and why there's so much fear around birth and how, how can we become into a place where we're not afraid anymore? I think that the most powerful tool that really dispels fear is faith. And we're not taught to have a spiritual connection to birth. We're, we're thinking of it as a, a, a bodily function. We're thinking about it as being something that our bodies do without any help from anything else. And it's, it's already separated. It's been long separated from being a spiritual event. And so for us, birth is a ceremony. And when I... Um, We're so far from where we once were. And by that I mean that in the indigenous perspective, birth was a ceremony, just like many other ceremonies. And so it was um, it was taking nothing was taken lightly everything had a purpose everything brought everything that was done was was brought ceremoniously like people taking their tobacco to that fire that was that's a part of it that's a very 
that's that's a first and foremost thing that was done um, years ago when someone was to have a child. That fire was lit by the men folk, by the father, and if the father wasn't there, it was it was lit by the grandfather. Even the lighting of the fire is a ceremony. And so after that fire is lit, then it keeps that they keep that fire alive until after the baby is born. So for example, if the baby was born at 6 a.m., then they kept that fire going until 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. Because it it's a whole half cycle of the, the moon or sun, right? And that is another connection. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the sun is that male entity that brings life. And the moon is that grandmother that looks after us as as female human beings. You know, that is like our physical grandmother that, you know, controls our female bodies, controls our, our way that we have our menstrual cycle, controls, you know, our cycles in life, and even cycles of the water. So that is all interconnected. And so when that ceremony occurs, then all of those things, all of the elders know that all of those checks and balances have to be, you know, we're paying our dues, so to speak. We're, we're thinking about the spirit because we, we owe so much to the creator for giving us life. Mm -hmm. We owe so much to Mother Earth for giving us life. And so all of those things are played forward in, in, in a way of thanksgiving, in a way of offerings, in a way of asking, um, you know, for, for the good to come in. And so all of that ceremonial thing happens. And when the baby's going to be born, to have so many witness, like going back to those twins, Charlie and Maddie, their relatives were tenfold. There were, there were many of the male relatives outside, sitting by the fire, tending to the fire. There were the... Um, as she labored inside the lodge, there were all of the, the women that came there to sing. And so they were sitting there and they were singing. Her husband and her brother, because she's a very tall woman, um, they each had one of her arms at one point. And because there, it's a spiritual event, um, Right before transition, when she looked at her husband, you know, she seen a wolf. And she, when she looked at her brother, she seen a Martin. And those are the, their clans, their clan, her husband is a wolf clan, her brother is a Martin clan. And so rather than seeing them in a physical way, she saw them, you know, who they truly are in a clan way, in their, their spiritual clan entity. And that is a powerful thing. Like, who do, I mean, who does that, right? And so all of those things that happen are, it's a spiritual um, event. And so to stay in that spiritual realm is, we could fast for three or four days. And what happens is our bodies, they are physical strength is lessened because we do not drink water and we do not eat. And so our body is getting weaker, but our spiritual sense is getting higher. 
and it's going up higher into the spirit world, right? And so even giving birth can be that experience uh, because we are not, we're hanging in the balance of the physical and the spiritual world. So for her to have that much of a spiritual experience is very profound. Mm -hmm. And so that is what we strive for. We strive to, to not be so much in the physical as we, because we know that we are blessed by the spiritual and that if you believe that, you know, if you have that faith and belief in, in, in what is happening, what is occurring, that everything will be as it is supposed to be. And so um, that's just a very profound and powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. feel it too. I, I really, I know your story touched somewhere deep within. And yes. that, I think that same draw that brings me to midwifery is, mm -hmm. I think you are living that connection and yeah. bringing connection yeah. and bringing wholeness yeah. to birth. That's what I, that's, I am teaching about that right now. And I do have a, um, I have a very wonderful time teaching that, mm -hmm. teaching us to reconnect mm -hmm. and teaching yeah. us to be okay with being in that space. Mm -hmm. um, Fear is not um, our friend. Fear has been put upon us by Western medical um, traits. And um, we have to have a belief that our bodies are made to do this work. And that, um, you know, historically we have been able to do that and have the, have the strength and endurance to do that. And also the, the spiritual wherewithal, because taking spirit out of birth is like, you know, then it then most women that think of it as a physical thing, that's what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. But inviting spirit into it, whatever that might be, mm -hmm. that has to, that, it doesn't have to, it does give you that strength mm -hmm. to see it in a way that is more holistic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think um, I'm trying to teach about. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and this interview has been just lovely and it's a healing process and yeah. we hope to learn from you and someday when we become midwives we can continue the yes. healing process <laughs> of bringing birth back to what it should be. Okay, I want to just tell you a brief story about the birthing crew that I'm working with right now. Yeah. I've just started my third year with um, Redcliffe Tribe and I teach at their... Um, at the Red Cliff Health Center. Um, I teach a group of women that are home visitors and um, health workers, and they have chosen to become midwives and doulas and birth workers. And um, so they're on many different tracks, but they're all learning simultaneously what I have to offer. And so we started our third year this year. Um, and uh, last year, one of the young women decided to have a home birth. So she did have a home birth on the reservation. And it was the first time in a hundred years that a child was born to the land, to their, to the, where their ancestors, you know, reside within the ground. Wow. And it was mm -hmm. the first time in a hundred years that there was a birth fire lit for their spirit mm -hmm. coming. And also it was the first time in a hundred years that the baby was born to the land and touched the land first. 
And so um, that baby is, um, she's over a year old now. And um, <laughs> I know it's very beautiful. She, she just turned a year old in December. And now she's having another child. And she's going to also have a home birth. Mm -hmm. And then we have a midwife that's practicing there with us. And she is having her a home birth. And we have two more birth workers of that group that are also due in April and August. And they'll, they all, there are going to be four home births there in a very short period of time. It's a movement. Yes. And <laughs> what they have done is soon as that got put like in this time and space, that birth fire, they had a, like a little map of like Redcliffe and Ashland and the surrounding area. They just, it just like it ignited something. And what happened is that four other women had home births within five months of that first birth. And so they actually put that home birth fire at the center, the first one, and that the fires that were lit were like in the four directions of that first birth. Mm -hmm. So there were five home births and five fires within a five month period wow. in that area of the reservation. And it's just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. They're moving at such a pace. Um, they're doing, um, they're doing some apprenticeships with the Ashland Birth Center and they're doing, um, two are, well, actually, yeah, two are, um, um, following me and um, another one is following another midwife in the area so uh, so all six of them are actively engaged and it's it's just incredible how much has grown in in just three years there's another woman in uh, right across the bay in Bad River Wisconsin so there's two reservations and you know Bayfield is on a point you know where you know, it's like a touristy area. There, mm -hmm. That's where the reservation is, Redcliffe. And you can see across Lake Superior, across the bay, you can see Bad River from Bayfield. And you can see, you know, Bayfield from Bad River. And um, there's now another older woman that's going to pick up midwifery in Bad River. And there's also been a home birth at Bad River. So yeah. everything is like starting to, just like uh, Archie Mose said, you know, uh, this work is just taking it on so many, um, to me, it seems like now it's moving very fast. Maybe it's just because I'm older now, <laughs> but it seems like it's just going chop, 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 chop. Yeah. You know, everything is like in alignment and mm -hmm. the stars are in alignment. So mm -hmm. it's all good. It gives us a lot of hope <laughs> yeah. for the future. Thank but I should so invite much. you sometime to come with a with me to go to bed or for you can see that would be absolutely amazing that's and amazing. maybe for our listeners just quickly to to finish up here is there a way that we can support you and the indigenous midwives that is really that's beginning to flourish and bloom like what sorts of support are you needing or wanting uh, well um some of them are um doing uh lay midwifery you know apprenticeships um, some of them want to go to, you know, like the Midwifery School of Utah, where one of my good friends, Jana, um, Jana actually, um, is uh, one of the lead teachers there. And I'm doing some webinars, and I've been really excited about that because they are very open to um, looking at midwifery through this um, holistic lens, you know, with a spiritual uh, perspective. And... Mm -hmm. So I'm doing some of that. 
Um, but I think like supporting, um, you know, the communities in general, um, I would like to see for them um, opportunities for them to engage in, in, in other, you know, learning works, whether it's um, helping to maybe do a scholarship or something like that, you know, that would be great because really they're not able to pay to learn midwifery like any of us. Oh, I never had to pay to learn. I never even had to pay to have my kids like 48 bucks. <laughs> but anyway, you know, wow. but they have to have a way to further their learning if they choose to take it to that level to become either a certified nurse midwife or if they want to practice lay midwifery. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually the tribe of Red Cliff is actually looking at trying to um, change the medical payment reimbursement f- through the state to try to have midwifery paid for there on the reservation through their health clinic. So that's a very big wow. step because I don't think that's happening mm-hmm. anywhere. Not in this country. In Canada, they mm-hmm. can do that. But mm-hmm. That prophecy so. is moving. I yeah. can just feel it in the yeah. energy and the way you're talking. It's yeah. something yeah. big is shifting. Yeah. I, I have been invited to go to the Turtle um, Healing Lodge in uh, northern Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And um, I was asked by the founder of that um, Turtle Lodge for Healing um, for North America. It's actually a very, it's a wonderful, beautiful place that's been in existence for several years now. And the founder is named Dave Cushane, a, a wonderful spiritual man, asked me to talk to a group of representatives from the Canadian government that came there. And he said to me, tell them what you think about birth. And I said to these, you know, um, people that were in Canadian government that had, um, you know, at something to do with their healthcare system. I said, birth is a sovereignty issue. Mm-hmm. And for us as indigenous people who have had to fight tooth and nail for, to just, you know, um, be able to continue to survive, mm-hmm. that that has to be looked at for us in that perspective, that birth is a sovereignty issue. We have every right to come into the world the way our forefathers and for, yeah. for grandmothers have Mm -hmm. and that's um, so I think that we need to look at that as a bigger picture Mm -hmm. thank you so much for having me it's been an honor I liked on our show today with a quote from Gudgee Cook she says native peoples won't be healthy and whole until indigenous midwifery which helps combat trauma affecting poly victimized people is restored to their communities. Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, like us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, and leave us a review. This really helps others find our podcast and share these empowering stories. If you have ideas or thoughts and reflections um, about the podcast, email us, and we'd love to hear from you. Our email is themidwifepodcast at gmail.com.